Hey, history enthusiasts, you get not one, but two events in history today. Heads up that you also might hear two different hosts, me and Tracy V. Wilson. With that said, on with the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's October 21st. The first modern planetarium opened on this day in 1923, which probably makes this sound like an episode that's going to be a lot happier than it really is in the end. So before this point, there were several ways to visually represent the solar system and planets and things like classrooms and museums. One was an orrery, which was like a large-scale model of the solar system, like you might make in elementary school, with balls and sticks that represented the planets. Some of these were incredibly beautiful and complex. They sometimes were operated by a series of gears that made the planets actually orbit. You might use a dome or a sphere with the stars painted on, or one that was lit from the outside with pinholes to mimic the stars. People also placed maps of stars onto a globe to be looked at from the outside. In 1912, Professor E. Henderman also invented something he called an orbitoscope. And this was a model of two planets that orbited a sun and a light that showed where their various shadows fell from a particular vantage point. This was a good way to visualize what planetary motion looked like. Then astronomer and privy counselor Max Wolf suggested to Oskar von Miller of the newly opened Deutsches Museum in Munich that he should have some installations related to astronomy. The museum was already set to have observatories and telescopes, and Wolf recommended that it also have some kind of installation that could demonstrate the stars and planetary motion. The museum contracted with Zeiss Optics to work on this, and Zeiss had previously donated telescopes to the museum. While working on this project at Zeiss Optics, Walter Bowersfeld had an idea in 1914. He thought he might be able to use a central light source to project the sun, moon, and planets onto the inside of a dome. Another engineer and director at the firm named Rudolf Straubel expanded on that idea to include the stars as well, all projected from the same central apparatus. The projection apparatus that was needed to do this was completely new, and it was a very inventive use of optics and light. The company had to put work on this on hold during World War I, but then a 16-meter dome was installed on the roof of the Zeiss factory in Jena in August of 1923. A series of demonstrations and tests followed, and then the whole thing was disassembled, taken to Munich, and reassembled at the Deutsches Museum. This first public showing happened on October 21st, and the response was extremely excited. People nicknamed this brand new first ever planetarium the Wonder of Jena. Soon the idea of the planetarium spread. More and more of them opened in more cities. Millions of people had visited one within five years. A very incomplete list of these first planetariums. One opened in Berlin in 1925, one in Moscow in 1928, one in Chicago in 1930, and one in Osaka in 1937. All of these used Zeiss technology. And the first non-Zeiss planetarium opened in Springfield, Massachusetts, and was built by the Korkaz brothers in the 1930s. So as I noted earlier, the Zeiss Planetarium was the work of Walther Bowersfeld and Rudolf Straubel. But Bowersfeld has gotten almost all the credit for it. This is because Straubel was forced to resign from Zeiss in 1933. 
This was a time of increasing Nazi policies in Germany, and the other directors at Zeiss demanded that Rudolf divorce his wife Marie, who was Jewish, or else resign his job. So he resigned. He and his family went on to be persecuted by the Nazis. He was removed from his teaching position at the University of Jena. Marie was arrested during Kristallnacht, but later released. Then Rudolf died of kidney cancer in 1943. Although they'd been targeted by the Nazis this whole time, Marie's marriage to Rudolf had been offering her some protection. And with that gone, she was given orders for deportation to a concentration camp. She took her own life instead in June of 1944. Their sons were later deported to labor camps. Rudolf Straubel was mostly written out of the history of the planetarium, with Barsfeld getting most of the credit. Barsfeld's first public acknowledgement of Straubel's involvement after the end of the war came in a brief mention in a paper not long before his death. Thanks to Eve Jeffcoat for her research work on today's podcast and to Tari Harrison for her audio work on the show. You can subscribe to this day in history class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can tune in tomorrow for a disappointment. Hi, everyone. I'm Eve, and you're listening to This Day in History class a podcast where we build the time machine and all you have to do is hop in. The day was October 21st, 1956. Leader of the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya, Daydan Kimathi was captured. The Mau Mau uprising was a conflict in British Kenya between British colonists and the Kenya Land and Freedom Army, also known as the Mau Mau. Britain had been establishing its rule in Kenya since the late 19th century, as part of the scramble for Africa. Kenya became part of the British Empire in 1920. As the British began to vie for control and exploit resources in East Africa, they also attempted to quell resistance from local Africans. Though some locals were initially tolerant of the British, some ethnic groups rebelled against the intrusion and violence of British forces and authorities. In turn, the British met this resistance with violence, including executions. On top of the suppression by British forces, famine and disease were also affecting local populations. And European colonists were seizing and claiming land for themselves. As more Europeans moved into Kenya and indigenous Kenyans were dispossessed of their land, Africans began forming groups that advocated for their rights, like the Kenyan African Union. There was also a large disparity of wealth between the disenfranchised Kenyans and the Europeans and Indians who lived in and around Nairobi, as well as some rural areas. Relations between colonists and indigenous Kenyans were hostile, and the oppression that Kenyans faced under British rule fed the spirit of resistance and led to nationalist movements. As discontentment grew, Nationalists with radical ideologies separated themselves from Kenyans who were working for constitutional reform. Many of them were Kikuyu, an ethnic group in Kenya that was seriously affected by European colonization and land dispossession. In the early 1950s, Kikuyu militants, along with Imbo and Meru fighters, carried out attacks on Europeans, raided farms, and destroyed livestock. They gained support for their anti-colonial cause using a campaign of oath-taking, often resorting to intimidation and threats. As the movement grew, some branches of the Kenyan-African Union became more radical. 
Still, Europeans and the colonial government made few concessions and continued their oppressive rule. By mid-1952, an overwhelming majority of Kikuyu adults had taken the Mau Mau Oath. The origin and meaning of the term Mau Mau are nebulous, but it broadly referred to the anti-colonial militants in the conflict. The Mau Mau went after Kikuyu, who aligned themselves with the colonists, and soon the government realized that the militants were a threat that could not be ignored. In October of 1952, just weeks after a Kikuyu chief who opposed the Mau Mau movement was assassinated, a state of emergency was declared in Kenya and British troops were sent in. This marked the start of the Mau Mau uprising. Police rounded up Kikuyu who were suspected of being leaders of the Mau Mau uprising. But the Mau Mau continued to organize and kill colonists and their Kikuyu supporters. Some people emerged as military commanders, including Warohio Itote and Daidan Kimathi. The government responded by evicting Kikuyu from land claimed by colonists on a mass scale. It also put suspected Mau Mau actors in concentration camps, where they faced torture and abuse. These actions drove more indigenous Kenyans to join the anti-colonial fight. The Mau Mau continued to lead raids and attacks against police and loyalists even after British forces dropped bombs on Mau Mau camps and Itote was captured, the rebels continued fighting. But by the end of 1955, most Mau Mau fighters had been driven out of the forest and were basically incapable of organizing any military campaigns. The conflict lasted until 1960 when the state of emergency was ended, though it effectively was over when Kimathi was captured and put on trial in 1956. The true death toll is a subject of debate. The official number of deaths is at 11,000 Mau Mau and rebels and only 32 white colonists, along with about 26 Asians. But other estimates put the death toll at a much higher number, with up to 90,000 Kenyans executed, tortured, or injured, and even more detained. Though the Mau Mau had been defeated and endured thousands of deaths, the conflict encouraged anti-colonialism and nationalism in Kenya and inspired a movement for independence from colonial rule. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you've seen any good history memes lately, you can send them to us on social media at T-D-I-H-C podcast. Our email address is thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you same place tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.